Welcome to Fintech Impact. This podcast is an exploration of the financial technology world, interviewing different fintech entrepreneurs about what they do, their story, and what their impact is on consumers, incumbents, and the industry as a whole. Here's your host, award-winning financial planner, university lecturer, and writer, Jason Pereira. Welcome to Fintech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have a pioneer in the fintech space, Sean Brayman of Plan Plus. Plan Plus is a financial planning software that recently actually purchased another interviewee, uh, Finometrica. But frankly, what he does goes far beyond just basic financial planning. And this conversation got very interesting very quickly. Essentially, we spent a little bit of time on the financial planning software, but really we tended to focus on a couple of the key trends or the key initiatives that he's involved with. So we talked a lot about academic research in the space and how they're trying to integrate that into the software. We also talked about global trends and tech trends in general and what the future will hold for financial advisors, fintech, and consumers. And I found it to be a very enlightening and interesting conversation as it always is with Sean. So I hope you enjoyed this. And now, Sean Brayman. Hello, Sean. Hello. How's it? How are things? Things are well. Good to see you. So, Sean, tell us about Plan Plus. So Plan Plus is Canadian-based. Companies started doing financial planning. When we evolved from, call it desktop to the web, we said the world's going flat. And so we built a multi-jurisdictional, multilingual a multi-currency platform. So basically a, a very global spin on financial planning that remains, I think, somewhat unique. We're very focused on research, client best practices, the profession that planning is trying to evolve into as opposed to the anecdotal rules of thumb that have often evolved that we are. Yep. Yeah, out of the industry and that people think then is how you do it, right? So Obviously, I'm a a bit of a geeky uh, research guy, and we do lots of research. And I'd say that's kind of our our focus is not, we're not a bunch of techies cranking out product. We're really domain knowledge experts and probably the most experienced as far as financial planning in a global perspective. So end of the day, you guys are really financial planning centric more so than tech centric, which is a difference to other startups. Totally. Saying. Yeah. yeah. You've talked to my programmers, they'll, they'll say they're tech centric. Well, you need someone to code. Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. So we'll come back to all that, but tell me about the journey to, to start this and what was the impetus for creating Plan Plus? Basically, Plan Plus was actually a spin out from a larger uh, Hewlett Packard ISV back in about 1985. So we'd actually started doing a planning piece for an insurance company. And at that point, there weren't a lot of planning tools in the Canadian market. There was one out of- 1985. Yeah. GoBay was around and- There was Excel. uh, There was, yeah, Excel. (laughs) And that was about it. So bottom line is um, the company we're doing the work for got acquired by another US company who then disbanded the whole thing. They were just buying the the policy book. and, And so they literally turned off Canadian operations. And let us left us there with a half-developed, actually expert system-based planning tool because I, I had done my early academic stuff in predictive expert systems, and then we ended up saying, okay, well, let's try to turn this into something. But it, it ended up instead of being mini computer oriented in mm-hmm. those days, it all ended up kind of the market went PC. And so I kind of spun it out as in an early days. And then we had to trash the whole thing, rewrite it about three times, you know, over the years. But 
So that started the journey. And so basically, I've been going to planning conferences here in Canada since 1986. How much change has happened? And is it enough? (laughs) Um, So so, no. So if I was going to summarize the journey, if you'd asked me in about 1990, I would have said, oh, my gosh, financial planning is so obvious, so logical, you know, take care (laughs) of the clients, client best interests. It's just the way the industry's got to evolve. And 25 years later, I'd, I'd sit here and say, Ooh, there's still a, a fair piece yeah. of the journey that we've never made. I'd also say technically too much of the story is the same now as it was uh, a couple of decades ago, right? Mm. A couple of decades ago, I would have had a room full of financial planners that said, what we're after is an integrated suite with our CRM, our back office, our planning tools, and be able to deliver good advice. Everything's best in class at the same time. Yeah. So fundamentally, we're getting there, but it's amazing how poorly integrated a lot of things are, you know, within both the tech space and and the advisor space. So over the years, as I said, we, we basically went web, went global and expanded, as you know, last year acquired Finometrica mm-hmm. out of Australia, because again, we saw them as a best in class evidence-based risk profiling, risk tolerance tool mm-hmm. and continuing on our journey. Okay. So lots to talk about there that I want to hit on. So the first thing you said is you went, one of the things I want to hit on is that you said you went web. So you, you guys were very early to the cloud. Really? Are we, everything we do, unfortunately, we tend to be a little bit innovative and at what they call the bleeding edge, right? Yes. So we went to the cloud 2001. We probably <laughs> wow. started doing our first web-based version um, was there anyone else at the time doing that? Not even close, yeah. right? Because really with, with detailed analytics, people were doing it in spreadsheets or mm-hmm. desk. And a lot of guys, as you know, are still struggling to get off spreadsheets and desktop-based software yep. because it's just you didn't have the same capabilities on the uh, web for interaction and so on. So, no, we were we were very early. Um, so you were cloud before there was a cloud. Absolutely. <laughs> when we were fintech before there was fintech, fintech right? Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, we've been doing it for a while. Interesting. Yeah. Now, another thing that's unique to your platform, or at least with the conversations I've had, you very much, like you said, multi-jurisdictional. How many countries do you currently operate in? So let me break it into two levels. So customer-wise, mm-hmm. we have planners or advisors within channels or whatever, probably running around 20 to 30 different countries. Mm-hmm. We have other countries supported in the software. So basically, we have 50 countries, roughly, that we do all of the taxation, asset allocation, and so on for them. But it, it kind of oh, wow. scales up in depth. We don't, some countries are simple, you know, no taxes or flat rate taxes. And that must be a dream, the program. Yeah, <laughs> those are the easy ones. And then, then you trip over countries like the UK or Germany or, so, the, US, so, yeah. or the US, like where, where basically we've had more time to complicate the world or Canada, where every where, year it gets worse. Yeah, new budgets and, and new ripple effect out to. Well, now, what are all the calculations we have to do here to be able to make mm-hmm. the thing go? So different. It's not the same degree of complexity in every country. But yeah, so it's basic scaling from simple goal based, if you will, mm-hmm. with asset allocation and taxes up to, you know, more bespoke integrated. 
fully cash flow based. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, and again, I don't think anyone else that I know of basically touches you on that side. There are other companies that operate in more than one country, but they usually take their program and they take their Canadian program and put it in the U S or their U S program and they put it into the UK, you know, or their Australian one and they put it in South Africa. But I've never seen anyone that's actually architected a global platform. So we have one Mm -hmm. code base that literally operates in every country in the planet earth. And for every one of our customers from a small IFA independent advisor up to the largest bank. And when, you know, one of the things that struck me when I took the CFA and the portion on tax planning at the third level, you realize just how few tricks there really are. There's a certain level of first principles that apply to taxation and planning around the world, right? Mm-hmm. So there's only certain types of income, there's only certain types of investments, there's only certain types of methodologies for taxation. Yes, we can convolute them with exemptions and all kinds of other things. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it, you know, I always thought to myself, it's possible to actually do this, to actually basically build something on first principles and extend from there like you have. So I commend you on that. Also, it's a, it's a funny you mentioned the entire taking from one domicile into another because that's, that's a classic business mistake in so many ways. Mm-hmm. I, I remember a, a company who will not be named that basically tried to do the same thing in Canada and came up here and I was trying to <laughs> ask yeah. them, I was like, well, why is critical illness insurance not on here? And they thought like, Oh, you know, we have long-term care. Like, no, that's not the same thing. Is, mm-hmm. is it disability? No, it's not. Like, it was clear that they literally had no respect for the fact that they were in a completely different domicile with a completely different set of rules and different products. They were just basically thinking they could pour it over. And that's... Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. Lots mistake. of people, you know, again, you look at a lot of guys from the U.S. that have tried to come to Canada and, and they kind of go, well, what's an RSP? Why doesn't it act like a 401k, <laughs> right? Why is the world exactly like us at exactly. all times? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's a currency other than U.S. dollars. So, yeah, no, I I think one of the advantages coming from Canada is that because we're Canadian, we work with more than one language Mm -hmm. right out of the gate and our tax structure with our provinces, you know, civil law and common law, you automatically see the world a little bit different than all one cookie cutter. Exactly. And that laid the foundation to then start saying, okay, as we kind of worked our way out, I think we might have had maybe a half a dozen countries on our desktop Hmm. version and went, this is not. <laughs> right. And then again, as we evolved the architecture, we said, okay, what have we learned and how can we make it then expand out? And quite frankly, I see the real opportunity just kind of coming to the fore now. So in the same way that 20 or 30 years ago, I would have said it's obvious people planning will take over the world in the next decade. Incentive right? systems haven't let us get there, but yeah, yeah it's, it's getting there. lots of things didn't keep, you know, the compensation didn't let us get there. The tech nope. didn't let us get there. There's no. lots of Regulatory reasons why. capture didn't let us get there. Absolutely. No. But what we are seeing now is that with the, again, the flattening that's coming in large FIs, financial institutions, right, whether it's asset managers or whatever the case might be, you finally have the financial world starting to look at system portability across different countries, right? Mm Because somebody in the US doesn't want to have to build an entirely different system to deliver in the UK. Assets and portfolios are more portable, but getting into the tech, it hasn't been. So I'm really excited, actually, about where that leaves us kind of looking forward. So a couple of points to get to. So Fendometric, from your standpoint, the view, I mean, great conversation with uh, with Paul on that podcast. From your standpoint, what was your reasoning or impetus for the actual merger? A couple of different things there. One is that 
we had actually done back and it's probably over on your shelf there. Risk is a four letter word with George Hartman was, you know, so George <laughs> yes. and I started working together here in Canada, collaborating back somewhere in the mid nineties, give or take. And we had done a bespoke risk profiling, risk tolerance questionnaire. And basically when we came across Finometrica, we said, there's something better than bespoke. There's an actual science here, exactly. right? So we, without too much trepidation, abandoned our RPQ, which was actually not too bad, right? But it was like everything else in yeah. the market. It was just us using our Your thoughts, our thoughts yeah. right? And we brought in Finometrica. So now probably 60 to 70% of our, our corporate clients are using Finometrica. Oh, wow. So it's a vast improvement. My goodness. Absolutely. Right. And it takes a while, right? It takes a, a while for people to get over there. Oh yeah. But we have this other one that, that we built a decade ago. Anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, science, what's science? Yes. It's just, you know, just this is for questions. the regulator, right? Uh, no. So one, it was a good business fit there. Plus we operate in a lot of the same countries. So we've mm. been, collaborating in Asia and, and other countries. And again, the fact we have a global platform and their kit operated globally, good logical fit. Culturally, we were very aligned. Mm. Again, we're both strong proponents of science, research, making sure it's not just what you think is good, but that it's, it's based on scientific evidence. Mm. So that was a good cultural fit. And it helped actually expand out our network. We already had small offices in Asia and, and so on in Europe. But what it did is it kind of op- it, it allowed us to complete that network. So we now have a, a bigger body of staff in Sydney that can help us in the Asia Pacific mm-hmm. region. I don't have to ask my developers, you know, or guys to stay up. Not usually until the, <laughs> the long, late hours of the night. Yeah. So it, it basically was a good business fit. We had common customers. We already had an integrated tech. Uh, it was something that, that we believed in philosophically. And, and I'd known Paul and his, his other co-founder in Finometrica going back, a guy named Jeff Davies, who was actually, Paul was always more the marketing voice and mm-hmm. Jeff was kind of the analyst behind it. So, when Jeff, Jeff's now 72 and wants to be surfing in Australia, looking after his grandkids. <laughs> you can blame and, him. Yeah, exactly. So fundamentally, you know, we said, uh, here's a great opportunity. We'll monetize Jeff, get him out of the business, wrap the two things in together. And Paul became a shareholder and director of Plan Plus. So really good fit. It also gave us more scale, you know, from a revenue point of view, sales and marketing point of view to be more responsive, both to small IFAs as well as larger corporates. It was a really, you don't find those types of things often where it was such a good fit technically and business-wise. Good. I mean, he seems happy from the conversation I had, so that's great. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you mentioned in terms of trends, and I've discussed this with other people on the podcast, mm-hmm. is the move towards integration. And you know, the proliferation of an APIs is kind of standard operating procedure now. And we're mm-hmm. seeing, I mean, in the US, I think it's probably the most predominant example. You can literally go to the FPA conference and pick five different components at random, yet they somehow all manage to interact with, with APIs to varying degrees of success. Is that something you're seeing elsewhere in the world or you think is is something that, is there, what are your concerns mm-hmm. around that entire issue? Because there are concerns around information sharing and how that's done on a secure basis. Yeah. The short answer is yes, the tech is evolving. But again, one of the things I would say is that 
if you went back 20 years ago, people had technical mechanisms, right? We evolved through, you know, DLLs and we evolved yep. through XML yep. and web services payload. And so fundamentally, technology's known how to integrate for decades. That's, that's not a, a new invention. What is different is you have to look at what is the reason for integrating and is the market at a point where in effect it's scalable. If two companies make two APIs, they don't abracadabra talk together. Someone's got to write all the interfacing for my API to deal with your API, Mm -hmm. right? Which is no different than what we had before, you know, whether it was database to database, whether it was through other interfaces, right? But is that just the modularization, the move towards modularization of components versus full stack integration? Yes and no. I I think that there's a bit of both. And let me say that I think what we'll see actually The U.S. has driven it for commercial reasons, partially because the U.S. was already more fragmented, right? If you look at the Canadian marketplace, we actually had data standards, which meant that it was easier to get stuff universally, which caused in some ways, I think they're looking in backwards, maybe some good and some bad. In the U.S., you have five big custodians, nothing speaks the same language, everything's about. So the business need to have APIs so that if I'm the CRM or whatever, I can suck it in from all these different places and different standards was much more at the forefront than what you see here in Canada. I think one of the big changes, though, actually, that I'm most excited about is if you look in the European market space, the whole redefinition of who owns the data from a regulatory point of view fundamentally changes the whole reason why APIs exist, right? I think, because what's going to end up happening is if the customer owns the data, not the bank. Which technically we do in Canada, but technically it's also given to us in the most difficult way possible, but. Right. So what's happened is you actually have API data standards that have been declared that all the banks all the financial institutions must adhere to. So it's not that every bank has to give the client the data in whatever format they want. They have actually said, here's the mechanism by which that's going to happen. Now, all of a sudden, think of a gazillion vendors who have access to the same data that the banks have, all the banks. So what does that do to aggregation? What does that do to the ability to take out all of the intermediaries that have been sucking at the trough in a very profitable way for many years? So all of a sudden, the nature of lending, right? When you can have automatic access into the client reality mm-hmm. with apps that can tell you, you will can, this guy pay or not? Yeah. Is it like, what's his right. behavior been? How fast is he spending? Exactly. Where is he spending at? So do I need to use a credit card as an intermediary device for credit or can I be a retail vendor and be able to validate that you're actually a good yeah. bet and I just give you the credit. So yeah. what happens with FX? What happens? So if you look at the entire space we are entering in, it's, it goes well beyond just traditional apps or, or platforms talking to each other. Yeah. We're going into a, a time where I think you're going to see a fundamental shift in a very positive way, potentially, a necessary redefinition of what the underlying backbones look like, if there are even backbones, right? So are you going to a distributed framework now where the client is 
legitimately at the center mm -hmm. where anybody who has data on the client, it needs to be shared in a consumable way. And that anybody who wants to build apps to make the client's life better can get at that, yep. right? So that's a paradigm shift. And we've already seen, you know, so Europe, the UK, I think Japan, Australia have yep. said they're now going to adopt the same standards. So this, this is a really cool shift in how the world is going. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you think about the number of, I mean, the mind-blowing number of possibilities for the most basic of functions that now have the potential for a revolutionary new market product. It's unbelievable. Absolutely. Like, like every last piece of information being that easily accessible and being able to, you said right there, why can the, you know, simple app that a retailer would be able to use to extend credit based on information yeah. terms? Like that's just, you know, that, that never even crossed my mind once. Yeah. I never even heard that concept, but frankly, that is incredible. And I mean, if we were to sit here for an hour, you'd probably think about, yeah. about a billion of them. And people are like yeah. that's So when you look at FinTech at not at, at just the buzz that's created by the investment arena and whatever, yeah, or, yep. and say, okay, well, what is fintech really? What it is, is a redefinition of how we can apply technology. And, and, and let me say, there's a lot of bullshit, excuse my language, in, in this space oh, yeah, where <laughs> anybody who yeah. sells to a bank calls himself a fintech, yeah. right? And, and like, it's got nothing to do with fintech. It's just, that's your market, yeah. right? But when you look at the fundamental nature of how we manage, manipulate, understand money in a person's life, right? And what we can do about that from a product point of view and so on, that's where you're seeing a lot of people who are stepping out of the traditional box to say, okay, we're coming at this a different way. And, and so one of the things, again, we're trying to do is say, yes, there are traditional paradigms for doing financial planning. And yes, we do it in lots of places with lots of advisors. And that's mm -hmm. all cool. And I, I think the things that we do when you look at the whole, call it suitability journey. Do you really know the client behaviorally? Yeah. Do you understand all of the other parameters that come into play, objective parameters, analytical parameters, like what do they need? The planning side, you know, what's their capacity? How do I move all those things together to come up with where I think the client belongs and how does that map into my product? Like you look yeah. at the whole suite. I think we, we rock, but how do you step out of the box and say, okay, think about all the things now where the data that I, as a planner that I need about the client is actually sourceable. Oh, I know. Just simply right. being able to plug, I mean, look at the inroads that eMoney's made in the US yeah. based off of one trick, data aggregation. Data aggregation, right? yeah. But that's just version 1.0 of data aggregation, in my opinion, because, yeah. you know, you're throwing it up on a dashboard. Well, congratulations. But, you know, what about the extensions of that whereby, okay, the, the plan says you're going to contribute X when your bonus comes in. Right. How about the bonus comes in, there's a behavioral cue that's flagged that automatically gets you to basically click yes right. to make that contribution and actually fulfill the plan. Right. right. Yeah. So fundamentally, if you look at that, and I think that, you know, there's two spins from it. So we already do a simple thing called plan track, right? Which yep. is part of our, our kit where we're looking at the plan said you're saving you're supposed to withdraw at this time and is your actual behavior mapping to that if not better tell the advisor mm -hmm. oh sorry jason's gone uh, awol on yep. us and let's yep. let's pull him back in and and reevaluate the plan or you tell the client yep. right so so that's pretty straightforward but where it even becomes more interesting 
is where you see all of the big institutions focusing is, you know, nudge, right? So, so yep, what, 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 what is the, not the full plan, but the one thing that I look at and I nudge you to do, right? Save this, pay down this, do this. And yep. now picture you're the consumer and you've got a hundred apps that are all nudging you in different directions. Yeah. Has nothing to do with your financial planner. It is yeah. every institution and FI you're dealing on with. On their right? individual basis, who streams. Yeah, there's a, there's a role for advisors in the filtering out of that to basically create the framework whereby here's what the actual important five things are or the six things right. are. And this is how you get to where you need to be. Exactly. Right. But the reality for the consumer is going to be much more discordant in the future. And it was already bad now, right? With multiple advisors pointing and pushing and pulling in different no directions. No different directions. Now, now you're opening that up by an order of magnitude, which offers to the advisor, I think, some really unique opportunities in coaching and working with clients. But it also means that advisors need to step out of their box from a technology point of view. Which is going to be incredibly difficult because most of them have exactly. fear of technology. And part of the reason for starting this podcast was to pull back that veil. Right. But they're too late. Like whether they yeah. like it or yeah. not, the technology is out of the box. The yeah. consumer is not going to wait. So people were afraid of disenfranchising themselves by letting the consumer see too much. But the, the road to success... Friction is not a barrier. It's not, it's not a way to retain business. It is a way right. to make your clients angry. Yeah. No, and, and I think that's going to be a challenge for the advice side of it going yeah. forward is how do you embrace the use of the technology, empower the, the consumer wherever they can or want to be empowered Absolutely. and be able to keep a hand on enough of the strings that you're the person that they're counting on to sort out, filter the hundred bad nudges yeah. to say, actually, here's the course that you should be following. And you can't do that in isolation of the technology. So I think that because we've always come at the world holistically from a planning perspective, yeah. right? That's the filter that you almost need to overlay across all the nudges to almost validate is what's happening here. It behaviorally, it might be nice to nudge the client, yeah. but is it, how does the client say it's yeah, the right thing to do? Death by a thousand do? cuts. It's a little too much. Bang on. And it's funny because you know so much of what you're talking about just kind of reminds me of all the advisor complaints about difficulty in marketing to millennials right? mm -hmm. in that there's a real disconnect, right? You have digital yeah. natives who grew up literally with all of this and yeah. you have the classic advisor of trying to sell them a product or maybe they are doing planning, in which case here's the, here's the static paper plan that I'm going to do once in a while. Yeah. And it's just not resonating with those people because they're used to immediacy. And, exactly. and, and you know what? It's not impatience. It's right. Mm -hmm. Because frankly, in a world where you can get a car pickup or any food delivered from any place literally in 20 minutes right. or Amazon dropping off whatever I buy online within the same day, mm -hmm. why in God's name does it take forever to, to pull together all this data for a financial plan? Let me give you a quick kind of observation as to why. And and that is, quite honestly, if you went into, I, I just came back from Finnovate on the weekend oh, yes, that was uh, in Europe. It was, yeah. it was good. Yeah. And some good presentation, good observations, right? But you know, may have heard that, for instance, Barclays Bank, I think it was Barclay or Lloyd's, one of them just announced two to four billion dollars to revamp their stack. And what people don't understand <laughs> is that some of these institutions still have IBM mainframes where you load up punch cards, oh, yeah. green screen. And in a world where not only the consumer expectation, 
but the regulator is now saying you need to notify the client within X hours in the event that this yeah. happens. Now, some of the things the regulator is saying I think are bad, are going to trigger bad behavior, sure. separate dialogue. But the bottom line is the entire stack that most of the big banks on the planet Earth are built on are batch processes that cannot do anything but run overnight. Yep. And so they've got to rip the foundation that's been sitting there yep. since the 60s and the 70s. It's a monumental task. Man, big, big time. It's interesting. And it reminds me of a story, and Will Simple, who was in here previously and talked about this, when the new regulations in Canada, CRM2, came out and yep. the changes that had to happen, the financial statements happened, they put two developers on it and got the problem solved inside of one day. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, every bank in this country had like two years to get it right. And the statements still went out late and with errors yeah, two years absolutely. later. Like it was a monumental task. And it just it speaks to the nimbleness of current systems versus the, the antiquated ones. But it also speaks to the fact that why is it taking so long mm -hmm. to try to move off these legacy systems? The answer is obvious is, is that everybody's always looking at tomorrow, not yesterday. If yeah. it ain't broke, don't, don't fix, fix it. it, right? So and if you go to try to fix it, as anyone who works in the tech world knows, you go to fix it and unintentionally you break something else, right? It's true. So the bottom line is, you know, as that long technical as technical debt just keeps on building. And now it's to the point where it's this monolithic monster that yeah. where do you even start without basically burning everything to the ground? Yeah. And that's the piece that especially with with what we're seeing in the whole again, data transparency and, and the yeah. client owns it's a again that's calling the question that they can no longer just ignore that debt. No. But what it's going to do is, is in effect, I think, end up creating, again, in the financial services sector, they're going to be trying to figure out how do we now, we got to re revamp it. Where do we go not to catch up, but to see where the universe is going beyond this point, right? Mm -hmm. So what does the world look like five or 10 years from now where, as we said, the client's the center of the universe, and there's a gazillion guys that can see everything about the client that he wants to share. Well, it's already happening. We're seeing disaggregation of any number of, of services. I mean, you look at all the startups, they're all picking on like one thing a major bank does, right? Yeah. And they're doing it infinitely better than that bank does. Yeah. And when you stop caring about the working with the large financial, financial institutions for the concept of security, yeah. and if you look at the generational shifts, the, the concept of security is very different to these, to younger people than it is to older ones where they were like, I want the big steady bank that I know that the branches on the corner and all that. Yeah. And we all have the same protections. We all have the same CIDC, CIPF, all of that sort of stuff. And you realize that a lot of that's just a smokescreen in a lot of ways. It yeah. basically allows them to, to sit back and do nothing. So that's already happening. And then you look at the players like Amazon talking about getting into checking accounts. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know how yeah. you're not absolutely terrified if you're working at these major institutions now. I mean, sure, a lot of them are like five years away from retirement. Yeah. They, you know, that's what I commonly hear. It's like, yeah, I'll be gone before that's a problem. Yeah. But that short sighted thinking is going to sink these, these traditional. Yeah. Well, Hierarchies. you know, again, like I think not all of them are, are quite as complacent. I think the fear is, is I'm used real. To cannabis, but, sorry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, but, but I think it, again, the, the number of 
types of opportunities and the, the rate of change. I was just in uh, India a month ago, right, mm. for a conference there. And as I was there, they were talking about, I don't know if you'd heard about the what they did about currencies, right, where fundamentally there were massive gray markets. Were they banned certain them. notes? They, any notes over a certain amount, yeah. you had a certain number of days, you could bring it in. They gave you an amnesty. So as long yeah. as you could prove that the money was legit, even if you hadn't reported it, no fines. Yeah. But fundamentally, all in a matter of months, they took all of the black market currencies on the planet, on their planet, their part of the yeah. planet, and they said, if you can't walk into a, a branch or a, a proper institution, hand over the dough then it's garbage. It's toilet yep. paper. I know. It was it's, hilarious. I mean, you heard stories about like people buying entire buildings with like briefcases of cash. Yeah. And just, just to keep the record off the tr- just to keep off the government's r- radar. Yeah. You know, you can't evolve into a Western society, yeah. Westernized society with that yeah. sort of nonsense. But I think the idea of staying off the radar is becoming progressively at every level be- more difficult, right? The concept. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, there was just a report the other day about how the forensics being applied to blockchain now means that anonymity yeah. is not an, a true value proposition of it anymore. So one of the things we talked you talked about touched upon earlier and I want to reinforce I want to go back to this. You talked about support of academic research. I know mm-hmm. you guys have supported a couple of studies. Yeah. I've been privileged enough to sit and look at the, re- the shameful results of one or two of them. But right. uh, yeah. shameful advisors parts not on what you guys did. But can you speak to that and like what you've done in the past and why it's important to you? I think like anything as as I said like I and I make no apologies. I'm a geeky academic type, right? And you know it started in 07 when I heard everybody ranting about Monte Carlo's and sequence risk, right? Yeah. And quite honestly, like I had a physics background to start, went into predictive experts. So I was a numbers kind of guy. And I'm going, this doesn't make any frigging sense, right? And that's when I, I won the first research, whatever it was, the Financial Frontiers Research yeah. Award in those days. And and then I kept looking. And every time I, I saw something that would bother me, where people would be doing something as if it was the right thing, and no one peeled it back to say, well, is there actually any evidence that this is true or yeah. makes any sense or whatever? So even as as late as uh, two, three weeks ago, we were at the uh, CFP board's academic colloquium down in DC mm-hmm. and won another best paper award with the work we've been doing with the uh, University of uh, Georgia. So that's the one on allocation. Right, on, yeah. on professional judgment, right? So, <laughs> so basically <laughs> yes. everybody, you know, so we know how to measure risk tolerance, right? Yeah. I, I think that part, it is a science. It's been operating for 20 years. Most, you know, you could go in and go to Google Scholar, you'll find 200 peer-reviewed papers all using Finometrica data and so on. Yeah. That rocks, right? Then you look at how do we combine and make the trade-offs for a client between need and capacity and education and time horizon and tolerance and all the rest of it. And that's research where this came up when we did the work with the OSC here in, in Canada and found that, well, nobody's really defined how you do that. And the regulators called it professional judgment, responsibility. So we said, okay, well, let's see if there actually is something under this. Bottom line is what we found is randomness. Most advisors, they all disagree. Some believe in tolerance, others don't. Some believe that it's all capacity, others don't. So the truth of the matter is they're all bringing their biases to the, the table. And, and the way I try to frame it is if you walked into 200 doctors 
and they all brought their biases instead of science, you'd walk out with 200 different exactly. diagnoses. That's not a profession, right? Yeah. So if we want to be a profession, that's why we say, even if we don't like what we find, you got to take, open it up, yep. look at what we're doing and say, is it true? Is it working or not? Right. And not get defensive about it. We don't have to apologize for where we're at, right? There hasn't been research in this space until now, so that's where we're trying to say. I think the finding, I think someone pointed out that when the question was asked, like, what allocation would you give for the person in this case? I mean, there was the two questions that were the identical yeah. question separated by one question, and they were different results. And that was shocking. And then the other yeah. one, the best fit happened to be 100 minus your it's age, huge. which right. I just, I literally, my hands went on the I know. It's like, it, yeah. was just, it, was, it was terrible. Yeah. I'm doing it right now because yeah. it's just so frustrating. Well, yeah. So, so that was, we had five scenarios. Two of them were identical in every way, same tolerance, same oh need, same whatever. And the only difference was the age of the client. And you fundamentally, what we found is when wrapped through to what would be the allocation, and the name of the paper that won this award is called Do As I Say, Not As I Do. Because what came out of the research is every one of the advisors said the right things. They would say, these are the pieces we need to consider. They all get it. They've all read it. They all understand it. But then when you look at what they did in action on the case studies, it wasn't the same thing as they articulated in the, in the no. open. And so that was exactly why we do research. It's why we try to say, you don't, no one's saying that the industry is perfect, but let me say that there are lots of financial planners that we work with. They care. They care about their clients. They care about the profession. They're trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. But a lot of this stuff, again, it's still driven by broker dealers, sales channels, yep. compensation. Where, where's the incentive other than the... Well, actually, there is an incentive. You do things properly, yeah. I believe business follows from it. And that's, that's been my belief. Absolutely. But in general, when you're starting out, or you're just basically trying to work through and be, just be an advisor to sustain yourself. The reality is, where is the incentive towards learning all this academic stuff? Like, there is yeah. nothing. Your incentive is to take shortcuts, and especially the ones given to you by the broker deal you're working with. Absolutely. Right. It's hard work. It is hard work. Financial, if you look at it, financial planning is hard work compared to going out on the golf course and selling some mutual funds, yeah, which right? Which is why very few people which, do financial planning. Exactly. So how, how many people in Canada, yeah. you know, with CFPs actually do what you would consider financial? That has always been a take, major problem. <laughs> take it the next level. And a lot of the ones that even do good planning or try to do yep. good planning, how many of them have ever in their life picked up a research journal, right? in the field of financial planning and read anything that yeah. would be considered. We don't even have a journal in Canada. I'm you know, very aware of that. You know, the, the Americans can at least claim they have the, the journal financial planning, which I do get. Yeah. But yeah, yeah we don't even have one. Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I think it's part of growing up as a profession. It is. Right. And I think that the dissemination, there is actually a lot of good research happening, but it's not making it through to advisors. Again, I go to a lot of conferences is that, globally. Is that, okay, so you go globally. I mean, I, there's places that are better for that, right? I would think Australia, the U.S., and the U.K. probably are further ahead on that and disseminating the information and making it more mainstream. U.K., I would say not so much. Okay. U.S., yes. But again, there's still the problem of disseminating and consuming are two different yes, things, right? So the, uh, the Journal of Financial Planning, it's structured so it's easy for an advisor to read. 
There's the Financial Services Review by the Academy of Financial Services. It's been around for 32 years. It is the grandfather of academic research in this space, right? It goes out free to everyone who has um, a member of FPA in the U.S., and I'm not getting this. You are. <laughs> you are. But but that's exactly my point. So if you look at the, there's an app you get for the Journal of Financial yes. Planning. And in it, just, you'll look, you'll find a link to the FSR, the Financial Services Review. I will have to look harder. And nobody, you know, I, every time I talk, people don't even know. They're getting it for free. And this is a quarterly peer-reviewed. If it doesn't show up in my inbox, it doesn't technically exist. And, and think about this. You are one of the bright lights as far as actually carrying and digging (laughs) and whatever. Now take that out to 25,000 guys who are just trying to run their business, who go to conferences and what they hear are product pitches 95% of the time. And why is it so frigging hard to turn the ship? Boy, we got a lot of momentum, right? And let me say in Canada, it's even worse. Like I was in a really embarrassing conference. You're not going to get any disagreement with yeah. me on this one. Go ahead. Really well, embarrassing well, conference. I got to hear in, in Well, in Mumbai, India, of all yeah. places, right? You go to India. Oh, is this about how they banned embedded compensation and we haven't? Oh, uh, well, no. I'm not <laughs> even going to go there yet. Like that's a whole separate thing. No, no this is in, indirectly. It ties to It was actually a Morningstar presentation, believe it or not. And they had done a global review of fees and costs of all of the markets that they're dealing, maybe 20, 25 countries. Canada is in the bottom 10% on the planet Earth for what we charge as embedded fees. In fairness, though, and I will, because I I actually know the former head of Morningstar Research for Canada, who actually refused to put his name on that report, they failed to compare apples to apples on that one. So Canada typically embeds advisor compensation within their fee structures for mutual funds. And even, but when you carve that out and compare it to domiciles like the US and elsewhere, Mm -hmm. we're much more similar. So part of it is, I think, fiction, but the reality is, is that the perception is such that people will claim Canada is amongst the highest fees in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem in itself. The perception is a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and again, I think that at the end of the day, whether we like it or not, follow the money. And even yep. with well-intentioned advisors, how you get paid ha- impacts people. It's true everywhere oh, on the oh, planet. Oh, wow. Yeah. Incentives somehow have an impact on behavior. What, what, a, surprise. what a surprise. What a surprise, right? So say what we will. Actually, funnily right? enough, that was the exact conversation I had with Doug Cummings. For those who don't know, he wrote a report. Was it for the yeah, OSC? Yeah. Anyway, so it was about how the impact of fund compensation on advisor behavior. Yeah. And he said he got a lot of negative slack about it because advisors hated the findings, but it was all true. And he said, lo and behold, compensation yeah. affected behavior. What a surprise. Yeah. This is not rocket science. No, it's right? not. Like, you know, so the bottom line is Canada. I love Canada. Every time I come home, I look and, and I think we are one of the greatest countries on the planet Earth. I think that our stable financial institutions and the fact that we got through 08 mm-hmm. more painlessly than most countries mm-hmm. have allowed us to continue on the illusion Thank you. Yes. right that all is well and and let me say and and I've ranted about this for ages in conferences right now you know it's down to if you look at the MSCI world the financial services space is down to 18% yeah. of the global, global. right yeah. it is more than oil and gas and healthcare added together right it is more than all consumer discretionary spending 
and most of the non-discretionary added together. So in what reality is it ever appropriate that the playing with money, the friction cost, the friction cost is 20 plus, it used to be 24% before, you know, around 08, right. Or before 08. So that's got to come back. And if you went 40 years back, it was six to 8%. So the problem is people now think that what we have is reality. No way. No. This is something that has evolved over a short period of time, a matter of decades. It is not reality. And the pendulum naturally yep. has to swing back the other way. It has well, to. If not, the trend line says that everybody will be working for a bank, which it feels like that in Toronto sometimes. Yeah. Yep. And I'm somewhat optimistic, I, I, you know, that, that what's happening now with the access to information yeah. with with saying this is not owned by the FIs. It's it's actually. I think we're seeing the the beginning of breaking down some of the walls that may in fact force the financial institutions. You're going to see a loss of advisors, those that don't up their game either. As but that's worked well in every country that's ever done it. So the UK, mm-hmm. Australia. I mean, Australia yeah. now with the proposed rules on advisor competency, only 25% of advisors meet the competency test. You know what? You leave behind the people who are more competent, better trained, and hopefully run better practices. Yeah. So the quality of advisor automatically by average increases because you get rid of the, the other ones. And then on top of that, now you have a new bar for new advisors to meet, which means that they're more likely to meet a professional criteria. Coming in, absolutely right. Yeah. So we so we're afraid of that here for some reason. Well, you know, you know what it is, is everybody, any, any kind of change, the immediate argument is, oh, this is going to be bad for the economy. We're going to lose advisors. We're going to lose this. Yeah. yeah. If the argument is such, and this has always driven me nuts when they talk about the amount of job loss in Canada, is, you know what? Well, if the only reason that those jobs exist is through lack of disclosure and low bars for competency, yeah. then we have a real problem here. We're extracting rent from the population in a way that is not ethical, quite frankly. Totally, totally. So, you know, on the one hand, I, I'm really excited about the time that we're coming into now. I'm, I'm yeah. frustrated when I travel and embarrassed sometimes by Canada, right? Everybody loves Canada. I feel the same Canada. way. I come back and I'm just, I'm, I'm disappointed yeah. by the ecosystem I come back to. Like, yeah. thoroughly disappointed. And it's not about the advisors. I've had people break down in tears right after we've, you know, yeah. I've presented or whatever, because people care. A lot of the advisors really care. But it's the ecosystem. It doesn't give them the, the success. The ecosystem is, is broken mm-hmm. in our messaging. And that until that changes, mm-hmm. all the rest of it is, yeah. And you mentioned George. When I sat down with him for lunch for the first time, he, yeah. he said, what's, you know, what's your biggest concern in your practice? I said, industry structure. And he looked at me. I'm like, I'm guessing you never had anyone say that to you before. He's like, no. <laughs> so I went on about the ecosystem and compared it to around the world and what's necessary for this for this profession to get to where it needs to be. Yeah. And in you know what? He basically said, you're absolutely right. And it's, it is. Yeah. And, you know, we're, share, we're we're clearly one mind of that. So before we close out, yeah. talk to me. Let's go back to the, to the company itself. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the great thing about this conversation is that you and I both have, a, I think, a great love for trying to understand this as a profession mm-hmm. and want to see it go certain places. Right. But let's go back to Plan Plus in the future. What's in your development pipeline? Like, what is it you're excited about with the product that's coming up? Oh, wow. Boy, there's there's so much that we have on the go at the moment. Some of the, the research we're doing, trying to try, tie more on the behavioral side. And I think there's a, a rabbit hole there that the world's going down that's very dangerous. Because fundamentally, if I was going to phrase it, how people behave, you know, system one, system two thinking, yes. right? So our job is not to figure out how people f- behave with system one thinking and then try to 
make that the reality to provide. Our job is to give them good advice with system two brains and figure out how to keep yeah. them from making the knee-jerk bad reactions, right? So what's happening is everybody's behaving as if we don't have an intellect, right? That <laughs> that fundamentally these behavioral pieces that are built in, oh, well, we, we've got to design our solutions and design everything as so if- So people don't have to think. So people don't have to think. And that's that's wrong. Sometimes you have to think to do the right thing Otherwise, you're going to drive people into a box where they will be unsuccessful. Yeah. So, Creating zombies that follow your path. Exactly. And so some of the areas where I think we're really looking at the world in a different way is we're not throwing out good advice. Good advice is good advice. We want it to be better advice, right? But understanding human behavior is an important part of the puzzle, but they have to live together in a, in a very healthy framework. And it's not by saying... We're going to figure out behavior and, and take advantage of it to sell the shit we want. Yeah. Excuse my language. All right. But rather, how do we give good advice, direct the client in proper professional ways, and we're cognizant of human behavior and avoid allowing it to derail what is the proper, thoughtful future of that client or consumer, hmm. right? And so I think some of the work we're doing there, you know, we've got... You know, at a very tactical level, we have some things going on. But I think, quite frankly, we bring, as as we always have, a very different vision to the nature of where this space needs to evolve, right? And we've always been customer-centric, family-centric, looking at it from that that perspective. So I, I'll kind of leave it at that. Fair but um, yeah. Oh. Thank you very much, Sean. This has been great. So thanks again for coming in, and uh, I hope everybody enjoyed this. Pleasure. It was really good to be here. And good luck with your podcast. Well, thank you. Excellent initiative. And that was my conversation with Sean Brayman of Plan Plus. I hope you enjoyed that. We went down a lot of rabbit holes and kind of got sidetracked quite a bit, but I think it worked out for the better. And with that, I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Join us again for the next one. Take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at fintechimpact.co.